DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to the Georgia Today podcast from GPB News. Today is Thursday, March 16th. I'm Peter Biello. On today's episode, we'll learn about one lawmaker's effort to help police better understand the minority communities they serve, a downtown Atlanta cultural landmark is going back to its roots, and two Georgia teams with very different resumes get set to play in the NCAA tournament tomorrow. These stories and more are coming up on this edition of Georgia Today. Georgia lawmakers gathered at the Capitol today to mark the two-year anniversary of the Atlanta-area spa shootings, where eight people, including six Asian women, were murdered by a white gunman. Since then, one state representative has made it his goal to bridge the cultural gap between minority communities and law enforcement. GPB's Sarah Callis reports from the state capitol. Representative Marvin Lim created a cultural competency training course for law enforcement. He hopes the course, offered by the Georgia Public Safety Training Center, will help law enforcement better understand diverse cultures. If the goal is to facilitate reporting Mm -hmm. um, and to better relations, by law enforcement better understanding people in their own homes, in parks, um, in emergency situations, we will form better relations so that there will be a two-way conversation among law enforcement and communities. Lim says public safety concerns are often underreported in minority communities. The course went live this month. For GPB News, I'm Sarah Callis at the state capitol. In a 96 to 75 vote, the Georgia House voted today to ban transgender minors from receiving some gender affirming care. That, despite fierce protests from Democrats who warned of this restriction's negative consequences. GPB's Stephen Fowler reports. SB 140 would prevent doctors from providing hormone replacement therapy or gender affirming surgery for minors with gender dysphoria. Republicans say that care could cause irreversible damage. Leading medical groups oppose the bill, and Democrats like Representative Terry Anulowitz said the GOP argument was hypocritical. We have declared in this chamber, parents are the first and most important teachers in a child's life, and they should have the freedom to choose the educational path that fits their child's needs. A question I asked in committee that was not answered, and a question I put forth before each of you today is what makes this different? The House bill also removed language that would protect doctors who provide banned care from being held criminally liable. It now heads back to the Senate. For GPB News, I'm Stephen Fowler. Also at the state capitol, a bill that would ban the use of third-party grants in elections passed a key committee hearing yesterday. Senate Bill 222 bans counties from funding election efforts with anything but their own tax money or other governmental sources. It's partly a reaction to DeKalb County's use of a $2 million grant to fund its election office, which incensed Republicans and others who promoted falsehoods about voting. Another section of the bill seeks to declare DeKalb County retroactively in violation of rules and force them to pay the grant back. Democrats say that's probably illegal and would result in an immediate lawsuit. The bill could head to the House and then back to the Senate before the end of the session on March 29th. The Georgia House gave final passage yesterday to a bill aimed at preventing financial exploitation of seniors. Senate Bill 84 allows financial advisors to delay transactions involving their elderly or disabled clients if they suspect fraud. The legislation now heads to Governor Brian Kemp for his signature. 
The House also unanimously approved legislation this week to require the state to assess whether educational requirements for many state jobs are necessary. That bill now heads to the governor's desk. Family caregivers are at higher risk of emotional stress, depression, and other health problems. But a group with the Georgia Department of Public Health is focusing on solutions. GPB's Ellen Eldridge has more. The state's Alzheimer's and Related Dementias Task Force is working with local partners to educate and support family caregivers. Elizabeth Head is with the Georgia Department of Public Health. She says many are not aware of available resources. A trained leader takes uh, individuals through six weeks of caregiving issues, both directed at issues you may face as a caregiver while caring for your loved one, but also turning it inward in the care that you need to provide for yourself as a caregiver. Head says Emory is currently testing its Telesavvy program, which would allow people to access the program from home. For GPB News, I'm Ellen Eldridge. Former University of Georgia football player Jalen Carter has pleaded no contest to racing and reckless driving charges. The plea is in connection to the fatal crash that killed one of his teammates and a football recruiting staffer in January. His attorney said this morning that Carter has agreed to spend 12 months on probation and pay a $1,000 fine, among other requirements, to resolve his case in athens Clark County. The attorney says Carter never left the scene of and did not cause the accident that killed teammate Devin Willick and recruiting staffer Chandler LaCroix. Atlanta's Rialto Center for the Arts is returning to its roots as an urban movie palace. Georgia State University announced Tuesday that the downtown venue has installed a new digital film projector and cinema screen. The cost? More than $300,000. Originally opened as a movie theater, the Rialto more recently has been known for music and stage performances. The center's executive director, Lee Foster, explains some of its history. We started in 1916 as the Piedmont, and then quickly came the Rialto. And then they had years of being just movies here. But then in the 80s, where the building and the area fell into disrepair, the then president of Georgia State University, Carl Patton, had a vision that if the Rialto came back as part of their sort of um, effort toward the arts and, and arts that would bring the community in, that um, it would revitalize the whole area. And I think he was right. So we're very excited. I mean, we've had many different movies here over the years. Um, and, and I mean, even since it's become the incarnation of Georgia State, it's just that we had to build the screen each time we wanted to show anything. And we had a projector in the booth, um, but it's just not this professional level. Plus, the screen on the stage wasn't completely flat, and that's a problem. So this is amazing. It literally descends from from the rafters and comes right down. And um, it's pretty extraordinary since it's like 1,600 pounds. Foster says the Rialto will continue to host music and stage performances, with film events rolling out later this year. Already, the Atlanta Film Festival has committed to a special screening in April, with further details expected soon. The news came weeks after the owner of Atlanta's historic Plaza Theater, Christopher Escobar, said that he had signed a lease to reopen Atlanta's shuttered historic Tara Theater. And Valdosta's Wild Adventures theme park officially opened its latest edition Tuesday. Oasis Outpost is part of a multi-million dollar expansion at the attraction that officials estimate brings about $80 million annually to South Georgia. 
Former Georgia Poet Laureate David Bottoms has died at the age of 73. He grew up in Canton, north of Atlanta, and went to Mercer University in the late 60s. That's where he saw a reading by poet Jim C. Here he recalls the impact of that moment in an interview with the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame. I saw in uh, Jim C. that uh, you could write about uh, the American South. You could write about where you were from. You didn't have to write about Wales. You didn't have to write about Paris. Bottom says he became serious about writing after that. He went on to write a lot about his life in the South, publishing 11 collections of poetry and two novels. He also spent part of his career teaching. With me now is one of his former students who now teaches poetry and directs the creative writing program at Mercer University, James Davis May. Tell me about your experience with David Bottoms as your teacher. When did you meet him? I met him uh, in 2007. I had uh, come to the Georgia State uh, PhD program uh, to study with him. Um, I remember reading his poems in the University of Houston library where I was before and thinking, oh, yeah, this is this is the person that I would like to stay with. Really? What, what was it about his work that drew you to him in that way? Well, at the time, American poetry was uh, very uh, cynical and it was uh, sarcastic. And here was someone writing uh, poems that, I, I don't know, they mattered. Uh, they seemed like they were going after important things rather than being maybe um, too cool to risk feeling or uh, more clever than the reader. Um, these were poems that were trying to reach more significant things. I know he wrote a lot about baseball in his poems, and he spoke at readings about not being as good a hitter as a kid as a fielder, so he'd sit in the dugout and read books like War and Peace. But in those poems about baseball, he often had this way of just elevating them to something beyond a baseball poem, whether it's a story about his father uh, or setting a scene that was really just poignant in its own right. But what can you tell us about his skill in elevating those ordinary things into something much more meaningful? David believed that the purpose of poetry is to find significance in life. And that clip you just played was about how um, he learned through Southern poetry, looking for the things around him. Not You don't need to go to Paris to, to have a profound experience. You can go into your backyard. Um, and so his the background of his poems are um, Canton, Macon, Marietta, um, Atlanta. And so his whole idea was, uh, he, he would tell us in class to turn your radio on. This is a phrase from a commercial, I think a gospel commercial when he was younger. But the idea is the, the poet has some sort of receiver, and the job of the poet is to look at the world and, and, and find the significance in it, to find a, a deeper meaning. It's so funny that he used that, because I had a professor in college, I studied fiction, who always said something about having antenna up, but antenna for emotion. And once that emotion sort of becomes clear, follow it, follow that emotion. Yeah, absolutely. And so that that was the whole idea, to just pay attention to the world. And uh, that's why in, in David's poems, you, you often see a, a lot of nature poetry, or a lot of images from nature, um, but also a lot of uh, images of his family, his parents, his wife, his daughter. So he's written several collections. Which one is your favorite? So my favorite is uh, We Almost Disappear, which uh, he I think he was writing a lot of the poems around the time that I was working with him, and the book came out when I was in graduate school. And these are shorter poems. And they're really about, you know, about his family, about uh, finding significance in, in in the world around him. His poetry, but also in, in just knowing him. Uh, he was a, a real positive voice for um, being a father, being part of a family. And you see that in his, his poems as well. 
Um, but also I, I was struck by something he said more a little bit more practical to uh, poetry. He said that a poet can't be a nihilist, that a poet always has to have a theological perspective. That doesn't mean the poet has to be religious, but that the poet has to believe that there's some meaning beyond uh, just what's in front of us and that it's the poet's job to search for that. What's something you'd like fans of his work to know about him? Or is there is there a poem that you'd really like to share uh, with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. One thing I would, I would want um, listeners to know is that uh, sometimes poetry has a, a reputation of being coy, that the speaker is trying to hide something from us and trying to be vague. But in David's poems, um, he's very direct. And um, if you, you, you don't need a PhD to appreciate his poems. Um, and so I wanna uh, read a poem of his called A Walk to Soap Creek. And it's a poem about, um, well, just what I've, we've been talking about, going out into the world and seeing and trying to find significance. And um, I'll go ahead and read it. A Walk to Soap Creek. Sometimes when I've made the mistake of anger, which sometimes breeds the mistake of cruelty, I walk down the ropey slope above the ruined mill on Soap Creek where sweet gum and hickory weave sunlight into gauzy screens. And sometimes when I've made the mistake of cruelty, which always breeds grief, I remember how years ago, my uncle led me, a boy, into a thicket of pines and taught me to kneel beside a white stone, the way a man had taught him, a boy, to pray behind a clapboard church. Sometimes when my heart is as dark as a stone, I weave between the trees above that crumbling mill and stumble through those threaded screens of light, the way an anger must fall through many stages of remorse. Any rock, he allowed, can be an altar. Well, James Davis May, director of the creative writing program at Mercer University, thank you so much for speaking to me about David Bottoms and so sorry for the loss of your friend and mentor. Thank you, Peter. Two Georgia teams are playing in the NCAA basketball tournament tomorrow, the University of Georgia women's team and Kennesaw State University's men's team. The KSU Owls go into their first ever March Madness appearance on the heels of their first winning season since joining Division I in 2005. They are 26-8 this season. Tamika Smith-Jones is the program administrator for men's and women's basketball at KSU. She says when the Owls take to the court, we can expect to see more of what the team has been building all season. Consistent play, very, you know, scrappy team. They're, they're very physical. Um, they've got a lot of uh, offensive threats, and they really can attack you in different ways, but they play so connected. They're together, and, and you know, they play for one another. KSU faces Xavier at 12.40 tomorrow. Meanwhile, the Lady Bulldogs face Florida State at 1.30 tomorrow to kick off their 36th NCAA tournament. And that is all we've got for this edition of Georgia Today. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow. We've got more Georgia news coming your way. If you've got feedback, we'd love to hear it. Send us an email. The address is georgiatoday at gpb.org. And as always, if you like this podcast, make sure you leave a review. That'll help other folks find us. I'm Peter Biello. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.